The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. In this episode, we dive into the book again, Members Club, a user's guide to the penis by Dr. Pierre Robeck, a urologist. We go balls deep with my good friend, Alex Nori Ballesteros. Over a series of four episodes, Alex and I have a few schlong conversations based on each chapter of Dr. Piet's book. In this third episode, we go through chapters in the book covering sperm and men's plumbing. We follow the passage of sperm from testicle to the vagina. The vagina is acidic. Why is that? Semen can taste funky. Is there a good reason for this? Will pineapples change the taste? What is the role of testosterone in sperm production? Why do testicles even hang outside the body? Can men ejaculate too much or too little? Is the force of ejaculation important? How about pre-cum? What is it? Can a woman get pregnant and catch STDs from this? What is the importance of the pelvic floor in ejaculation? Is there an advantage to premature ejaculation? We discuss techniques to manage this common issue. Is blood in semen a problem? Should men actually sit to pee and not stand? How do you avoid nicotine undies? These podcasts are for everyone, whether you have a penis or not. I learned so much from both reading this book and navigating each of its chapters with the very open Alex Nori Ballesteros. I hope you enjoy our chat. Welcome back, Alex. Yo, Tash. Today we're going to talk about sperm to start with. Mm-hmm. Very simple, true or false question. Sperm is a tricky, oh, sorry, sperm is a sticky substance, true or false? Sperm itself. I imagine it would be more of the semen that would be sticky, but Ooh. let's say true. Okay. Sperm or semen is a whitish fluid. Uh, all post-pubescent men, and also perhaps most women, know where it comes from. The penis during an orgasm. True or false? I mean, it comes from the testicles, but yes, from the penis. <laughs> Made by the testicles, see. Mm-hmm. But matured in, if we're talking about sperm per se, matured in the epididymis. Mm-hmm. To prevent all the sperm from trickling out when a woman stands up after sex, it has to have a certain stickiness. Do you agree with this? Uh, yeah. It makes sense, huh? Mm-hmm. The viscosity of human semen varies greatly from runny to not runny at all. The variety is as great as the variety of men. But what I know in, um, you know, in working with scientists in laboratories, helping people conceive, is that sometimes sperm can be too viscous. So sometimes it, 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 it could be as simple as a man not being well hydrated or hydrated enough. I've noticed with myself. There's sometimes it's really like clumpy and it's like it doesn't shoot out, it kind of dribbles out. Or sometimes it like, you know, it's less clumpy, it's it's more, uh, it's clearer mm-hmm. and it's more poof, shoots out. Do you think that has to do with uh, the amount of maybe water you've drunk that day? 100%. I'd say water but also electrolyte status as well, I imagine. The vast majority of men, namely 95%, ejaculate between 20 to 80 millilitres of semen, true or false? 
It sounds too precise. I'm going to say true. It's actually false. Really? It's much slower than that, yeah. They ejaculate between two and eight milliliters of semen. Oh, yeah. That'd be like heaps if it was 20. <laughs> now that I think about like looking at it, I'm like, that'd be heaps. Yeah. That's like a bottle. It's like an essential oil bottle. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's much, like a teaspoon, so less than a teaspoon. much less than that. Now, in order to ejaculate a sufficient volume, you must also be in good health and drink enough water, one and a half to two liters a day, true or false? True. True, that is correct. Experts compare the smell of semen to chestnut blossom or the Chinese calorie pear tree. True or false? Sounds true, but I feel like it doesn't smell great. So those things, whatever you just named, must not smell very good. (laughs) (laughs) He's got here um, true that they do, apparently experts do smell semen that way. Um, but there are very few people, he writes here, who think, mmm, that smells of chestnut blossom <laughs> when they smell semen. Rather, it's the other way around. The first time you catch a scent of chestnut blossom, you think, oh, that smells of sperm. People with a rich olfactory imagination think that semen tastes of almonds. The actual taste of semen is more unpleasant than that. It's not supposed to taste nice either because guess what? Otherwise, we'd eat it and that's not the aim. Exactly. I mean, it, some people love it. Yeah. Oh, different strokes for different folks. If semen tasted like honey, he's written, a lot more oral sex would take place and a lot fewer eggs would be fertilized. It would defeat the object of the exercise to ensure reproduction. If online porn is anything to go by, there is enough ejaculating in faces and, mum- and, and mouths as it is. Um, pineapples. Mm-hmm. There's this whole thing about pineapples making your um, sperm taste better or sweeter. Yeah, sweeter, yeah. Is that something you've heard as well? Oh, yeah, I've heard it heaps. Um, I don't know whether it's true or not. i got no clue. There is... um. A friend of mine who said that uh, she she's vegan and uh, she was out with a guy, dating a guy, I don't know, slept with a guy and he, he was a big meat eater. And one thing that put her off was the fact that his semen tasted like meat. That's um, weird. Uh, not really. Maybe very zinky or something. Yeah. Because obviously meat has a lot of zinc in it, so I imagine. Protein. Yeah, I don't know. True or false? Testosterone is needed to make sperm cells. Wait a minute. Let's just go back a second. She mm-hmm. said she's vegan. Yeah, but she's previously she knows what meat tastes like because she has eaten meat in the yeah, past. Yeah, but sperm comes from an animal, so why is she consuming it? Oh, good point. I mean, not a true vegan if you swallow semen. Well, taste if you it. go by Dr. Pete Horbeck's advice, it should not be eaten for that for many reasons. Question. <laughs> if a man eats his own semen, is he just like? Do you never deplete? The nutrients that are in the semen, then would you just recycle them? In some way, I'm sure. Mm. I mean, not that it would you necessarily not that yeah, it would I mean, taste there'd, good. There'd be zinc in that semen. Yeah, there'd be zinc. There'd be all yeah, a bunch of other stuff. There'd be zinc. There'd be different proteins. Electrolytes. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Microdosing. <laughs> yeah, on semen. <laughs> wow. Going back to my question earlier, the testosterone is needed to make sperm cells. True or false? True. Very true. If we don't have testosterone, then um, the testicles don't fall into action. Since testosterone levels are highest in the morning, the testicles produce most sperm cells then. He he, he writes here about the sleep-wake cycle. 
uh, and uh, our entire sleep-wake cycle, he writes, and therefore our hormone cycle is governed by a light-sensitive hormone melatonin. After a long-haul flight, this rhythm is disturbed and we get jet-lagged. Melatonin makes sure that we can adjust after a few days and that testosterone peak takes place where it belongs, in the morning. Another true or false question for you. Mm. It takes around a thousand days to produce one sperm cell. True or false? False. That is correct. So, how many days on average does it take to make a sperm cell? 70. Wow. Yes. 70, 72, 73. Yes. The words, the number seven comes up there. Notice. Mm -hmm. Uh, at that point, they aren't fully mature though. The tail doesn't yet move. The sperm cells first have to learn to swim. Only after maturing for two weeks in the epididymis, that is the structure to the testicle that makes the connection between testicle and seminal duct, um, are they ready to conquer the outside world? Question. I'm going to interrupt you there. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be asking you the question. Oh, mate, you're the doctor. So I'm going to ask you the question. <laughs> uh, you got the head of the sperm. But I'm not a urologist, right? That's true. Yeah. The head of the sperm, you mm -hmm. got the tail of the sperm, mm -hmm. the bit in between it. Mid-piece that yeah. has the mitochondria. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it has a type of motor in it. Uh-huh. What's the, the motor energy called? of the cell. What's the, the motor The, the flagellum. Called? Yeah, flagellum. If people want to freak themselves out as far as like, I love evolution, right? Mm -hmm. So when I learn about things that have evolved, obviously sperm has evolved, Go look up a flagellum motor or flagellum motor on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It will you'll be like, what the hell? How did this thing come about? The intricacies that go into a flagellum motor, mm. it's just insane. And that biology does it so sophisticated. The way that it runs, like we as humans could not make it on such a micro scale. Mm. You know, I think eventually we could probably I think we have been able to make like tiny flagellar motors with like nanobots or whatever, but it's just, and, and there's bacteria that have flagellar motors and stuff. Do you know where the word flagellum comes from? It's a Latin for- No, whip. I was going to say no. Oh, but it's still flagellating. I know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I so see. It, so. is, it is Latin for whip. Okay. Hence why they got that whip sort of mm. thing. And the word flag comes from that as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, because of flag waves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Didn't think of that actually. That makes sense. Um, yeah, so it's just that little aside. Go look up a flagellum motor, F-L-A-G-E-L-L-U-M. I think it's double L. I just said double L. No, did you? Yeah, L-L. Oh, sorry, L-L, yeah. <laughs> Listen. Yeah, flagellum motor. Go look it up. Um, I may have been high when I looked it up. I can't remember. But it freaked me what out. What made you want to look at a video about flagellum? I don't know. I don't know if like I saw it on Facebook or this was like quite a while ago. Right. I can't remember if I saw it on Facebook or. Um, Did it talk about uh, a sperm cell and flagellum? It, I think it talked more about a bacteria. Right. Okay. But yeah, they showed every little like how it pieces together and all the, the intricacies of it. It's um super interesting. The fact that, you know, nature has been able to design this thing through evolution, I think is, is amazing. Yeah, the human, on such a micro the, scale. The human body is amazing. Yeah, super cool. It still is the most amazing thing, I think. It's the most complex yep. organism on the planet, the most complex machine. And we still don't understand half of what goes on with it. Nope. Um, both testicles, Dr. writes here, do exactly the same thing. There is no difference between sperm cells from one testicle or the other. However, 
The right testicle hangs a bit lower, true or false? The left which one? The, the right. right testicle hangs a bit lower, true or false? I thought it was the left that hangs lower. Yeah, but that's right. It's the left that hangs lower. It's, it's yeah. the left that hangs lower. So and false. Yes. So, um, and that's because of, of the way that men have developed and pretty much goes down to the plumbing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Renaissance period, artists were already reflecting science in their sculptures, but even going back to the ancient Greeks, that's what they used to do. Um, in, in, in ancient Greek times, the, uh, a, a male statue, it was always the head that was bigger than the, than the actual um, flaccid penis. You never had erect penine in, in mm. Greek culture. It was always flaccid penises because their whole thing was uh, their head, the way that people thought was more important than anything else. Um, and, yeah, it, it, the, the, male, the penis was always represented as just, just another part of the anatomy. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big focus and they didn't well, want to make they, it that focus. they saw big penises being barbaric. That's why a lot of women back then would go, the, a man would go with a woman to go find a Spartan to sleep with because they were known to have bigger penises and they could produce better. Spartans? Yeah. So they'd actually find bigger, stronger men. Like a man would go out with his woman to go um, to go find a, usually a Spartan because um, they believed that they had really good um, warrior genes and all that, whatever. Mm. And they'd, they'd try and breed them. With them. Hmm. Yeah. Spartans being from the Peloponnese. Yeah. That's where my mum's from. Oh, right. That's pretty cool. In 2002, a British psychologist won the satirical uh, Nobel Prize for Medicine after visiting countless Italian museums with a spirit level to measure what everyone had already noticed with the naked eye, that the left testicles of the sculptures were lower. Hmm. Um, now, why do testicles hang outside the body? Alex? Um, for temperature regulation, keep them away from, they need to be like two degrees lower than core temperature. So they would, they have to be in this like Goldilocks zone, essentially. If they get too hot, it kills the sperm off. Same as if they get too cold. Or slows them down. Yeah. Yeah. The optimum temperature for production of sperm is 35.6 degrees, two degrees below the normal body temperature. This is the reason why the scrotum is in such an inconvenient place. Otherwise, the testicles would safely be tucked away inside the body. Uh, and then he talks about varicocils, uh, which is basically, in the way I describe it to patients, is a collection of varicose veins in the testicle that are more common on the left because of the plumbing. And uh, uh, because of that, there's temperature dysregulation. Ten- testicles heat up and so does um Hence the impact on on sperm production. So you're more likely to see a, a varicocele in um in in men who are having issues with conception and helping their partner conceive, or in men who have what we call abnormal DNA fragmentation that then can contribute to infertility and miscarriage. And often men may feel this at the end of the day as kind of this dragging sensation in the in the scrotum, particularly mm. on the left, a bit of discomfort, not sharp pain, but more like a kind of a dull ache and more prominent um, in, in the later part of the day. Um, can, you, can you explain to me? Hmm. Um, so I've heard, heard the term testicular torsion. Yep. And I've like met a couple of people in my life that have had it and had to have it operated on. Do you know the exact like what it's about, how it works? Well, 
It's when the blood supply to the testicle is basically compromised. Mm-hmm. So I've had an ovarian torsion. Yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And that's analogous to a testicular torsion. So I had a big cyst on my ovary, my left, and it had twisted and it couldn't untwist. So um, that um, – and sometimes when, when an organ like a, an ovary or a testicle twists, um, they can untwist so that you can get this intermittent ache. Mm-hmm. But when it stays torted, that is twisted and the blood supply is cut off, it's a bit like strangulating, you know, someone. Yep, yep. Um, you get intense pain as that tissue swells because the blood supply uh, is compromised. And, yeah, you can lose your your um, testicle. You can so it's the individual, the individual testicle twists on itself. It's not like the, the testicles wrap around each other. Or no, like it's, it's that not, individual yeah, testicle. Yeah, yeah but okay. what, what can happen as a consequence of that is you can – um uh there can be a breach in the um the testicular blood barrier and uh, men can then lead, uh, can then develop anti-sperm antibodies that then can lead to infertility so the, the immune system will start attacking the sperm cells mm. yeah right far out so yeah testicular torsion is not uncommon either I see that quite a bit um where I, when i take a history uh, from a man that, that they often have a history of some form of testicular trauma or testicular torsion. And again, I'm not a urologist, but I know that um, some men have um, certain anatomical uh, features that mean that they're more at risk of testicular torsion. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question somehow? Yeah, 100%. That's, yeah. yeah, cool. So moving on to the prostate. The prostate takes its name from the word prostatis. I was about to say it's a Greek word, isn't it? Of course it it is. (laughs) A Greek word for protector or guardian. Yeah, right. So in Greek we often say tha prostatevo, which means I will protect you. That's a prostatepso. So, yes, the prostate is is protective. But the prostate doesn't actually protect anything maybe, he says here. Its main function is to secrete a fluid that makes up around 20 to 30% of ejaculate. The fluid is slightly alkaline as opposed to acidic, which is what the vagina is. So it neutralizes the acidity of the vagina and keeps the sperm alive for longer. To work properly, the prostate needs male hormones, of which the most important one is testosterone, testosterone, which is produced by the testicles. Yes. Funnily enough. (laughs) So long as it works as it should, men don't really notice their prostate and probably notice it a bit Later in life when the prostate starts getting bigger and they have problems peeing, et cetera. Um, a study show involving 32,000 men, a remarkable number by, yeah, when you look at medical studies. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big, big number. sample group. Showed that men who ejaculate more than 21 times a month, that's nearly every day, between the age of 20 and 40 have a 20% lower chance of getting prostate cancer. Did you know that? So I'm definitely not getting prostate cancer. (laughs) Keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) The figures show a real paradox. We know that testosterone promotes prostate cancer. The higher your testosterone level, the higher the risk. This is why we chemically castrate men with a metastatic prostate cancer uh, to control the tumors. I didn't know that. Uh, It appears that frequent ejaculations neutralize the harmful effect of testosterone in the prostate. So again, going back to his message thus far in the book that ejaculation, erection, all of that is important in keeping a man quite healthy. Um, Just like knowing, you know, cardiovascular exercise is going to be good for your, for your heart. Yeah. Same sort of thing. Yep. you got to keep the, the pumps working. 
Generally speaking, you can't ejaculate too often. Ejaculating too little is unhealthy for the prostate. But aside from physical health, there is also mental health. And that's where the problem lies in men who masturbate excessively or suffer from sex addiction. So if you're a chronic wanker, <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, what would, it, what, would it, um, what would a sex addict be? What is the definition of someone who's a sex addict? Um, I feel like there'd be obviously a textbook. You have to look in the psychology textbooks for that yeah. one. But I don't know. I think for me personally, if you're masturbating more than really – two or three times a day, I think it's probably an addiction. I think once a day is probably enough, one to two times. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not an addiction expert and maybe we need to get someone on here to discuss that. Actually, no, what am I saying? I, I, I did have a, um, an episode with a, about, um, about porn addiction anyway uh, last year. Uh, and, in, and we did discuss this actually. We discussed the fact that an addiction – Pretty much that, you know, takes you away from your daily routine that interferes with your life. You know, if you were to say uh, not be able to go to work because you, you want to just stay at home and watch porn and masturbate, then that's probably an addiction. Or if you don't really want to catch up with family and friends because you'd rather stay at home and masturbate and watch porn, well, that's probably an addiction. It's probably not a good thing. Mm. Um, I think yeah. If it starts affecting your, your sleep, your energy levels, all that kind of stuff, it's probably... So yep. it's venturing into that realm. When, when it's affecting your mental health, social health, uh, physical, financial health. Um, and that's what I liked about the World, the World Health Organization's definition of, of health is not just, you know, having a, what are your blood a heart that ticks properly. Yeah it's, yeah, it's about all those things, social health, sexual health, financial, physical, mental, all of that. Um, I think health as an overarching thing is um, – It's being at a level of homeostasis that allows you to live the best possible life you can. That's it. Balance. Yeah. So like you can't say that someone in a wheelchair isn't healthy. Like if they're in that position, what's the best life they can live? You know what I mean? So I think that's kind of an overarching definition of health for me. Yeah, that's that's a good point because someone in a wheelchair may be infinitely healthier than someone who's not in a wheelchair. Yeah, but like health has to be relative to the person. Mm. I yep. think mental health is, is a big one. Yeah, I'd say it's the most important one. Yeah. I think mental health for me when yeah. I think about it. And it just has flow-on effects to everything else, doesn't it? Yeah, that's why I've eased up a lot of my dietary stuff. I just as long as I don't eat too many calories, I don't, you know, I get a good chunk of protein in. I'm not I don't have any health conditions where that restricts me from eating certain types of foods. I just kinda eat whatever I want, really. Mm. I suppose you being a personal trainer, there'd be a lot of expectation on you to focus on food a lot, right? Yeah, that's why I talk openly to my clients about, you know, I'll eat burgers, I'll eat this kind of stuff. But it's more about the social aspects that come with eating those foods, eating with my partner or with friends or whatever. Like it's not just a I'm ordering Uber Eats and eating burger by myself watching Netflix. It's, you know, I'm I'm going out to dinner, I'm I'm having and I'm I'm not just demolishing food. I'm, I'm maybe eating a bit slower, enjoying having conversation. I think that encourages overall health way more than well, maybe the like neuroses the, that can cover that, yeah. that can surround. Well, the eighty twenty rule. Yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with having an Uber Eats burger and watching Netflix once in a while on your own. Yeah, nothing wrong with it, yeah. but as long as it doesn't become the default mm. pattern, you know. And I think, uh, you know, if if my if this decision that I've made to eat supposedly unhealthy food 
puts me in a grave a year or two earlier, I'm okay with that. I've enjoyed many, many years of, of quality life because of those things. Yeah, and some people would argue that there's no such thing as unhealthy food. Yeah. That there are some better foods than others. Yeah, it's a spectrum. Now, pre-cum. Mm-hmm. What glands in the male make pre-cum? As in G-L-A-N-D-S, gland plural? As in glands, G-L-A-N-D-S, yes. Um, Deep inside the urethra, they are. Oh, I was going to say prostate, but clearly not. The cowper's glands. All right. How do you spell that? C-O-W-P-E-R. Cowper, Cowper's, yep. And the amount can vary individually from nothing at all to annoyingly too much. An obnoxious amount of pre-cum is exceptional and the treatment is often very frustrating for the doctor and the patient. In principle, pre-seminal fluid, that is pre-cum, does not contain sperm cells. But if you ejaculate in quick succession, sperm cells from the previous ejaculation may be present. So you can get a pregnant a woman pregnant with pre-cum. Providing it's the second time around yeah. in a short time. More likely, yeah. yeah. Sexually transmitted diseases can also be transmitted through pre-cum. Um, he then talks about ejaculation and the role of the seminal vesicles mm-hmm. and uh, they uh, sit near the prostate, the seminal vesicles. I like the way he talks about them. Seminal vesicles. With a limited amount of fluid, which along with the sperm cells only makes up 10% of the ejaculate, the sperm cells moves to their final dis- final filling destination, the seminal vesicles. The two seminal vesicles, which are glands that are three centimetres in length and lie next to and behind the prostate, are like food trucks. (laughs) (laughs) There, the sperm cells are immersed in a solution rich in sugars, salts, minerals and proteins. This fluid makes up 70% of the final semen. And I love the way he's just described them as food trucks, cute little food trucks. Um, and to finish the mixture, the prostate also does its bit. It's mildly alkaline prostatic fluid, uh, accounting for 20% of the fluid that makes up the semen. So, yeah, when I, – I don't even know if people even give it much thought as to when a man ejaculates and you've got that, you know, seminal fluid or that whatever you want to call it, sperm, cum, whatever, where that all comes from. It comes from little – it's like different sources. It's uh, Yeah, and it all mixes together. All mixed together. Bit of a hodgepodge. And then depending on, you know, when we interpret um, – Is it a bit of a cuchleon? Is that what they call it? What's a cuchleon? It was in ancient Greece. It was a um, – it's coming back to psychedelics. Yes. The um, Eleusinian mysteries, they had a cuchleon, which was a, a beverage, like a, a a beer or a wine, which in they mixed different um, – they could put psychedelics. They put ergot, which was a, um, which is a fungus like grown grains. That was a psychedelic portion. But they would just put like, um, they might have beer or wine, with different herbs and stuff in there. So I thought we would have known. Cuchleon. Cuchleon. It's, oh, I think okay. it's a, I think it means like mixture or blend or something like that. But I think it's an ancient Greek word. Yes. It so sounds, if, sounds if you right. don't know it, that's fine. I don't blame you. Yeah, I don't know much ancient Greek. I imagine you wouldn't. Like, why would you know ancient Greek? Yeah, and I didn't do that at school. I did, didn't, mod- I did modern Greek at school. Didn't study the classics. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so when we interpret a, um, a semen analysis in the lab, we, we look at different things. And depending on the volume of, of that sample, um, you can figure out sometimes what um, gland or organ may be at fault. 
All right, yeah. so if there's too much of this type or, or too not enough. Too, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Volume is yeah. decreased. So after you've asked a guy, hey, did you have any problems collecting? And I'll say, no, then you've got to go, okay, I wonder why that's happened. And if you reproduce the sample, the same thing happens. It makes you think, oh, something might be going on here. Do you guys use like a, like when you take a blood sample, you centrifuge it and you separate the plasma and stuff? Yeah, Do you use the same scientists sort of thing? have a very, very sophisticated, well, some labs are more sophisticated than others. But um, you know what? You just made me realize I should probably have a, an andrologist on Mm. On the podcast. To talk Where does the word andrology come um, from? Ancient Latin. Andro. <laughs> it's Greek, of course. I know that. I was just being <laughs> cheeky. Andras in Greek means man, and yep. ology. Anything ology is knowledge. Okay, going back to. Uh, he's written here. According to the song "Oh La La La" by Belgian rock band TC Matic. Uh, having a small penis isn't a problem so long as you can shoot a long way. But even the force of the ejaculation is unimportant. There is no relation to fertility. In a manner of speaking, it is enough to deliver your sperm to the front door without actual penetration. Sperm are very good swimmers. But at the end of the day, it is important, especially when we're talking about matters of reproduction, when people say to me, oh, you know, um, you know how far in should he go? I always say as far in as is comfortable for you, but you really want to get that glands penis, the head of the penis, as close to the cervix as possible because mm-hmm. you want to give those little boys the sperm. It's funny how I refer to them as boys. Anyway, I just do. Um, as, as great a chance as possible because there will be a massive amount of attrition, so a huge amount of, of those sperm cells will actually die at the point of the cervix and die in the vagina. Or the cannon fodder, <laughs> if you will. Yes. So I'd say that 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 is my answer. But yeah, like, like uh, if a man ejaculates halfway in the vagina or even just outside, there is that that is it. There it always is a chance. Um, I've noticed as I've gotten older, my ejaculate length is lower. Mm-hmm. I found when I was younger, like in my early twenties. Why do you and think stuff, that is? Um, I think maybe it's. Uh, I don't know. You, you might have an explanation in there. I'm just gonna hazard a guess and say it's more of a novelty thing. You know, like once something that excites you when you're younger is going to have more of a response, you're going to have more of a response to to novel stimulus. But if you keep having sex over the, you know, the decades, years and decades, the same stimulus is going to have less of a response. So maybe it's that. Um, when I was younger, I probably – did a bit more of the the sexual health stuff that we talked, the penis health stuff we talked about in previous podcasts. Um, so I was more concentrating on, you know, edging and all that kind of stuff. So it's been a long while since I've done that. I'm just guessing. I even <laughs> I even tried it once to see what was the, the furthest I could. Oh yeah, I'm sure. So, uh, I'm sure so many guys do that. Like on the floor, and I measured it. Oh, obviously right. cleaned up after. Like a, like um, <laughs> what's that Olympic sport? High jumping. Is that oh, high no, jumping? Uh, either long jump or long jump, that's shot, it. Put, shot, shot put. put. Yeah, right. shot put. Yeah, look, I'm not surprised. So, you know, if that was an Olympic sport, I reckon they'd be quite popular. And it was, I think, got about it like a meter and a half. Wow. Like it was a, I yeah, that was that was a record for me, definitely. Yeah. Oh yeah, a lot a lot of guys bring that up in in my consultations. They they can't seem to ejaculate as far. I'm like, well, hey, dude, you don't really need. Doesn't to. matter. No, it's cool when you do it. Yeah, you feel like a, a savage, but it's not. Yeah. That big of a deal. No. 
The deeper, he, re- he writes here, the penis penetrates the vagina and therefore the closer it gets to the womb, the slightly higher the chance of fertilization. But any kind of penetration is in fact more than enough. Just like penis length, ejaculation force is a symbol of fertility rather than proof of fertility. There you go. Apart from the spectacle value, <laughs> ejaculating of a long way is of no importance. When healthy men think they don't ejaculate far enough, they are often comparing themselves with porn films. Porn isn't bad in itself, but it idealizes everything. Men in porn films usually ejaculate a long way and in large quantities, but I've said before, that isn't the norm. Nowadays, men ejaculate with varying force, both in terms of ejaculations by the same man and ejaculations between different men. You can score yourself if you want, and that's what you've done, Alex. (laughs) There's a scale from zero to three. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Zero. If your sperm ends up in your pubic hair while you're lying on your back, that's a score of zero. Between your pubic hair and navel is a score of one. Between your navel and your nipples is a score of two. If you ejaculate past your nipples, that's a score of three. The scale has no significance unless you like figures. I've had to change a few pillowcases before. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's why it's best just do it over a toilet or something, less cleanup. (laughs) Have just a handy roll of toilet paper there. Exactly. Put put an old Metallica shirt on your belly or something. Just a lot. Let's clean up. Let's clean up. Yeah. It's, it, and I personally, probably people don't want to hear any of this stuff, but. Um, well, they're still or, listening. Yeah. Oh, hopefully. You're down to three listeners now, Tash. <laughs> I've just destroyed your, your listener base. Um, I'm bringing down property values. So, um, yeah, I've had all three of those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just think, think it's, it's interesting how, who's come up with that score? He's got a reference here to that, which I find is interesting. Oh, who came up with that is what, what I want to know. Yeah, and um, that's good actually. I quite like it though. Score. Mm. Now, a very specific stimulus comes from the vagina. When a woman climaxes, her pelvic floor contracts and the penis is squeezed. The additional pressure on the erectile tissue can be the final stimulus required to trigger ejaculation. Uh, there are men who try to increase the sensation with a wash basin <laughs> when they masturbate. They tap their penis against the edge of the wash basin just before climaxing. The sudden increase in pressure on the erectile tissue can give their ejaculation extra strength. There you go. Can you just do it on your hand? Why would you do it? I don't know. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Or any surface, really. Why a wash basin? That's odd. Are, you, are they wanking over the sink? Who knows, huh? Where that's come from. Yeah. Why not a washing machine? <laughs> a washing machine. <laughs> or a dishwasher. So it vibrates as well. Mm. He talks about age and the role that it plays in the force of ejaculation. Uh, generally speaking, younger men have more forceful ejaculations. That's to do with what, you reckon, Alex? What do I think? Mm. Why do you think that could be? He's got a very simple answer for this. Um, it's the strength of something in particular. Pelvic floor? Yes. Yeah. The strength of the pelvic floor, something you can practice, which we, we are going to go into a bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's where I think the kegels and reverse kegels can come in. Yes, uh, definitely. I think um, I need to bring that up more more in my uh, consultations with men, especially after reading this book. Wow, it's been a and talking to me eye opener. And and of course, <laughs> I'll send them to you. Yeah, I'm I'm clearly a medical expert. 
Well, you're 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 an owner of a penis, so you have more expertise than I do. Hence, you're on this podcast, right? Yeah, that okay. gives me right to talk yeah. about penises. He's got a really interesting bit here. Um, he's titled it "Suicidal Soldiers." D-Day. The troops are about to land on a hostile coastline. The male orgasm is the beginning of the battle of life and death. Everything contracts to get as much semen out as possible. If a woman orgasms too, everything contracts to get as much semen in as possible. In three waves of attack, millions of sperm speed towards their first target, the vagina. One milliliter of semen contains around 20 million sperm, so that's an average troop size of 100 million men. The soldiers are minuscule. Sperm cells hold the record for the smallest human cells. Did you know that? I did, actually. Because <laughs> okay. I may have read this book before. <laughs> sperm use this tail to propel themselves. They have a tail. Obviously, we talked about that tail before what's with the, the flagellum. The flagellum. And the yeah. mitochondria, the little energy, you know. Um, the powerhouses the powerhouses, in the powerhouses, the cells. Sperm use this tail to propel themselves forward at a speed of one to three millimetres per minute. The thicker midpiece at the base of the tail contains the mitochondria, the energy stations. The invasion were, has only just begun and countless sperm fall at once. The troops have landed in an inhospitable acid bath. The acid in the vagina burns through the delicate cell wall. At the same time, the vagina moves them on. It contracts during orgasm and the increase in pressure gives the semen the necessary push to escape from the corrosive juices. See, the vagina does actually care about the semen. Yeah, it's weird. It's like this kind of, I don't know, because obviously the, the acidity is trying to destroy the sperm, but it's also like, all right, come in, it's doing both. Did you know that it's the acidity of the vagina that actually discolors women's underpants? No, that makes sense. Sir. Mm, it does make sense. So- the sperm are not just abandoned to their fate. The seminal fluid contains enough ingredients to keep the gallant soldiers alive for a day or two. Fresh sperm can even fertilize an egg up to 72 hours after ejaculation. But for this, the sperm must reach the fallopian tubes. The only way out of the acidic vagina is through the cervix, the entrance to the womb. If a woman isn't fertile, the sperm come up against a mucus plug in the cervix and their mission is already over. If the woman is ready to be fertilized, hormones dissolve the plug. Es the, well, I, I was just going to talk about estradiol. So when, when you can see a woman's about to ovulate, her estradiol levels go up really high and that has an effect on cervical mucus and makes it really watery and runny. Just a little point there. Hmm. Going back to the swimmers, the swimmers wriggle their way through the narrow opening. It's a tough battle and it eats and it's each man for himself. Sperm that doesn't make it past the cervix are quickly devoured by the acidic environment of the vagina. So that's a little bit about sperm passage. So what you're telling me is that the sperm need to drink some, bring some of that Eno stuff. I think it's called Eno, you know, like the, <laughs> the effervescent bicarb. <laughs> If only they had that a bit on top of uh, of their little, I wonder what, commando pack. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, my mom would always give me the you know, the Italian stuff in that like, oh, yep. transparent jar, the effervescente yep, yep. stuff. <laughs> Whenever I feel sick, she was <laughs> chuck that in me and my hair. Bring that with you. Is that before the era of Gaviscon? Yeah. Gaviscon, mate. 
All I had was the effervescente and Vicks Vaporub. Yeah. That's all you need. Yeah, Vicks Vaporub is still around. Yeah. As is that other Italian stuff. I love it. Um, in the previous episode, we talked about uh, premature ejaculation. And um, he talks about here uh, uh, about evolution and uh, that it was possibly an advantage for men to climax quickly. Uh, he's written a long time ago, premature ejaculations probably weren't premature at all, but quite normal. Uh, now that sex and reproduction aren't so inextricably linked and sex has first and foremost become a pleasurable pastime, ejaculating quickly is more of a disadvantage than an advantage, just like someone traveling um, or revealing, sorry, the end of an exciting film halfway through. Um, true or false? Alex, the average intravaginal, vaginal, vaginal is more, intravaginal is more American way, intravaginal ejaculation latency time between penetrating the vagina and climaxing is, is about two to three minutes. For premature, premature ejaculators, we are sometimes talking about a, a mere few seconds, true or false. I say true for the vagina thing. I yeah. say true. Yeah. yeah. For both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm, he's written here. If you're wondering how you can increase this latency time, you need to know where the problem lies, not in your penis, but in your brain. The button in the control room is pressed too quickly. Some men can even ejaculate just by thinking about it. These men can quite rightly be called deep penile philosophers. Wow. What, what? Is that a Greek word, philosophy? Totally is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love my background. Sorry, my heritage. Very proud. Is it for the no love of knowledge? Is love that of knowledge. Yeah, okay. um, well, philos, yeah. Philos is friend. Um, going to a question about premature ejaculation. If a couple's sex life is suffering due to premature ejaculation, sex therapists can teach a classic squeeze technique, true or false? True. Okay. Can you tell us about this classic squeeze technique? Uh, what I imagine they're talking about is if a man is getting close to ejaculation, they would, I guess the woman or the man would grab the penis so that it causes like a mild amount of pain, but nothing unbearable. So then that pain signal would shut down the ejaculate signal. So it just kind of overrides it. Hmm. Is that that's what he's talking about? He's got here, when a man feels his ejaculation is on the way, he asks his partner to squeeze his penis hard and distract him. Unfortunately, this action also resembles the contraction of the pelvic floor during a female orgasm, <laughs> so it might be that he might just climax even more quickly. From my patients, he writes, I know that some couples are perfectly attuned and they successfully interrupt the ejaculation cycle using this method. For others, it isn't quite as easy. But, yeah, uh, I think he, the point he makes about couples seeing uh, sex therapists um, is really important and I think they're probably underutilized sex therapists. Um, well, aren't you going to? Maybe have a sex therapist on your yes, podcast Yes, that, that's coming up in the future. Absolutely, we're mm -hmm. going to have one. Um, true or false? You can also help yourself by wearing a sturdy condom or rum, rubbing numbing ointment on your glands. Oh, definitely true. Yeah. I think that's one thing as well um, that's really important is which condom you buy because they're obviously different thicknesses and stuff. So you've got different brands that have like naked or thin or whatever. Try to avoid them if you do have any... If you do tend to to come a little bit earlier, so 
Mm. More important. And definitely don't wear two condoms. Um, always wear one, but try and get a, a standard thickness one. A thicker one. Yeah. Okay. He also talks about antidepressants here and, and um, their use uh, and why they may help with premature ejaculation because they slow down the transmission of electrical stimuli in the brain, thus slowing down the cycle of arousal and ejaculation. And one one very commonly known side effect from antidepressants in men in particular, that, and not just men but also women, is that it does definitely reduce libido. Yeah, I've had clients that have gone on them and, um, you know, my clients talk to me about a lot of stuff and – yeah, they've, they've said that within the first, I think it was about 12 weeks, that's what the doctor would tell them, mm. um, that they should can expect a loss of libido, and they did. But then after that, you know, sort of few-month period, they, they got it back eventually. But it was it was pretty like within a few weeks they just mm. lost all interest. And, and just like this kind of a lot of them would feel better, but like they'd kind of feel this general – not emptiness, but just walking around like there's not much going on. Mm. But they've been taken out of that depressive state. So yeah. there's always pros and cons to that stuff. Yeah, I think it's just important that people are aware of the impact that any drug can have on their sex life, like yeah. libido. And it's just like women who are put on the combined oral contraceptive pill, one of the common side effects from it is reduction in libido. And um the way it does that is it increases this thing called sex hormone binding globulin, which binds testosterone so that the libido is basically just significantly reduced. And the impact of that is that even if a woman stops the pill, the combined oral contraceptive pill, that long-term that sex hormone binding globulin may remain high. So even after she stopped the pill, she may have ongoing issues with low libido. How do you fix that, Hey, How do you fix that? So, yes, patients knowing about potential side effects on sex life. I think that's important. Uh, you know, if you're going to – obviously, there's always pros and cons to any medication to even, you know, quote-unquote natural therapies. There's always going to be pros and cons. So as long as the practitioner doesn't just go, oh, here's a pill, take it, you'll be right, as long as they, they do make their patient aware and then the patient can make a decision without judgment. You know, I think there is some some doctors out there – and I've, I've, you know, I've gone to doctors and stuff and they're very, um, some of them are more open to things. Some of them are more like, nope, you don't need that or no, nah, that's stupid. Or um, if you don't want to engage in something, like I've had tested for quite high cholesterol before. And the first thing the doctors said is I'm going to have to recommend you. I think it's legally you have to, but oh, I really recommend you take a statin. And I'm like, how about I just try and change my cholesterol? And I have been able to drop it. So I think that's just something people need to realize that if your doctor just doesn't want to have open conversations about these sort of things, find another doctor or, yeah. yeah. Like if they just say, take this medication and then you'll be right and don't openly tell you about what potentially could happen, I think you might, yeah, maybe find someone else if they're repeatedly like that. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I think it's also very important for patients to do their own reading around everything yep. that they've been told and, and to read around everything and to see the doctors and have lots of questions with them mm -hmm. because the role of the doctor really is to give options. Yeah, they're a facilitator. Yeah. Yes. Right. And also to, you know, inform. But I think patients need to, to know they, 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 they always need to do homework when they leave a doctor's surgery. They should. Ultimately, and the only the person that cares about your health the most is you. Yep. 
So you should never leave everything up to a doctor or no a naturopath way. or a chiropractor or a physio or whatever. Like, and who wants that? I wouldn't want to leave everything up to my doctor. No, no. you become sort of helpless. No, so that's one I want, thing. I want them to be like a, a kind of a helper, or a guide for sure. Yeah, and, and, a, and a, a resource. Yes. You know, you've got questions for, you can exactly. ask them and they, they're kind of. A trusted resource. Exactly, a confidant. And that's what I try and do with my clients is I, I, I want to be a confidant for them. I want to be someone that can, you know, educate them and um, try and be re- relatively objective with things. And ultimately my goal with my clients long term is that they don't need me as a trainer. If they still want to train with me and stuff because they, it keeps them accountable and whatever, that's fine. But my goal is to educate clients to a degree and a level that, you know, after a certain time, they don't, they can just go train by themselves. They know enough. Yeah. Well, you're steering people in a, in a good direction. Yeah. Now we're going to also talk about the um, opposite of premature ejaculation, which is actually men who ejaculate too slowly. And for some women, I think this is like a big point because it's like, oh, come on, get it over and done with, will mm-hmm. ya? <laughs> um, premature ejaculators, is written here, might not believe it, but the other way around is no fun either. Imagine only getting off the starting blocks when the others are past the finish line. Men with this problem feel dissatisfied and their partner has long since succumbed to sleepiness, boredom, overstimulated sex organs, or painful nagging thoughts. Am I maybe not attractive enough? Uh, and then he goes on to talk about the importance of the pelvic floor and again in in, um, in managing this problem uh, and that, you know, when you exercise your pelvic floor muscles and regularly and effectively that you will have more control over your ejaculation. Do you have anything to say about that? No, I've said it before. You know, I've, I've experienced both sides of the spectrum. I tend to sit, you know, in the middle of the spectrum most of the time and then the very odd occasion sort of outside of that. I think when I was younger, I tended to be able to go for longer because um, I was practicing techniques to do so. Also, if I ever, you know, smoke weed in um, in a location where it is legally okay to do so, then I will um, generally be able to last longer. Yeah, I thought I find something like that. Maybe because you're more relaxed in that scenario. Very much relaxed. I find you can you can everything feels different. You can concentrate on different things. You can really be in the moment. A lot of your stresses fall away. So I'm not recommending people to smoke weed to last longer in bed. That's just my experience. That has happened. Okay. Legal disclaimer. He's also got here that uh, the third step when dealing with premature or late ejaculation is perhaps the most important. What do you reckon that would be? What sorry, say it again? The, the third step when dealing with premature uh, or late ejaculation. What would be the? He, he, think, he thinks the most important thing is to talk about it. Yeah. To being yeah being able 100%. to talk about it openly in a relationship by communicating, you prevent the physical problem from becoming a conflict within your relationship that em, that embitters both parties. I keep saying it, just open line of communication with this stuff. Absolutely, hundred percent. Now, true or false, blood in sperm is common, true or false? Um, Whether it's common, I don't know. I would say probably isn't that big of an issue. I don't know how common it would be, though. It's not uncommon. It's quite common. Um, He's got here, if your sperm is a pinkish color or has pink threads in it but you don't feel any pain, it is probably a burst blood vessel in one of your seminal vesicles. The seminal vesicles contract multiple times during ejaculation, 
and a very strong ejaculation can sometimes burst a vessel. It is not a dangerous condition and it will disappear by itself after 10 or so ejaculations. It looks worrying, but it is nothing to worry about. Just ignore it. However, if it is painful, blood in your sperm can be a sign of inflammation in the prostate or a testicle. Then you'll usually have a fever and feel unwell. I say to people, even if you see sperm in, you know, pink, uh, pink, pink ejaculate or pink sperm, you know, if you're worried, see someone, doesn't matter. Don't, you don't have to put up with, with a number of ejaculations being pink and thinking it's going to clear as he's written here. Um, I just think, I think it's important to know that you can just see someone early. I think also, um, he's not American, you, you, is he? You, no, he's, he's from Belgium. Okay. He's a European urologist. Does he, does he live in America or anything? He lives in Belgium. Oh, he lives in Belgium. Yeah, trained was, in the Netherlands. I was going to say, like, they probably got relatively socialized healthcare over there. But I was going to say, if he was an American or lived in America, I'd understand that statement because you got to go pay to see the doctor. Whereas here, obviously, we have Medicare. That, mm. right, if I need to go see a doctor over bloody sperm, it's not a big deal. But if you live in a non-socialized medical system, mm. then you have to go pay. You know, a lot of people don't go see the doctor over there. Mm. So I thought that's maybe why, but obviously not. I think this is, again, going back to um, his mantra, penis, fullness, knowing what's normal and what's no not normal so that yeah. then if this happens, you're, okay, what is this? Oh, okay, it, it could be normal, but if it's not going away, it's not normal. Yeah. I need to go and see someone. As opposed to you just going on Google and then thinking you have yeah. dick cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Which does happen. Yeah. Yes. Um what does he talk about here? Oh, he talks about vasectomies and, uh, I, yeah, I think vasectomies are awesome. Great option. Um, and I love it when I ask my patients after they've seen me, um, well, they're seeing me for very, whatever reason. And I ask them, so what are you using for contraception? And a woman will invariably always look at me, pause, have a big smile on her face and say, he's had the snip. Mm. And it's like she's relieved and she's proud of the fact that he's now taken that role that in that relationship. He's gone, you know what, now it's my turn to do something for us and mm -hmm. that will be to get the big the, the snip. So I'm, I'm pro-snip big time. Um, do you have any, any comments about vasectomy? No, I think it's if you're an adult, you know, once again, this is a discussion we had with the circumcision thing. If you if you were doing this to kids, I go that's definitely not cool. But if you're an adult and you think that's a viable option, and like let's say you've got a couple of kids, you're done with having kids, or you never want to have kids, um, I think that's fine. You know, if you're not sure but you're still getting a vasectomy, maybe get your sperm frozen so you can get IVF at a later date or something because you can't obviously reverse it. So well, you can. And sometimes it can be very successful, but really, the longer you leave it from vasectomy until reversal, the, the less likely it's going to work yeah, in terms the, of the sperm gets killed off. Yeah, and that stuff, yeah, yeah. But you also develop the longer a man's had a vasectomy, the longer he's had to develop um, anti sperm antibodies. Yeah, this is where the, the can, immune yeah. response comes in. Yeah. So it starts killing them off. That's right. So yeah, uh, I, to, to long story short, with that, I'm I'm okay with vasectomies. Um, I've heard of individual you know, case studies of people finding they have lower um, motivation, testosterone in their blood levels have dropped from it after getting vasectomies. So that could, um, I mean, theoretically it shouldn't really be happening, but maybe it's just an age-related thing. I don't know. But 
I've also read that it might increase the chance of prostate cancer. Getting a vasectomy? Yeah, but I don't know if it's because a man is more likely to get prostate cancer as he's older. Yeah. So, and prostate cancer is generally a cancer of older men, so I don't know. It could just be correlational or causational. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't think it's a direct causation, mm. but, yeah, might be some connection there. Now, urinating, obviously, the other role of the the penis. Mm-hmm. Should a man sit when he pees <laughs> or should he stand? Okay, so we've got culturally or evolutionarily. Evolutionarily, he should sit. Um, and personally, it's, it's <laughs> originally, I, um, I don't know, maybe about six months ago, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd have a boner or in the middle of the night, I didn't want to turn any, light, any lights on, so I figured, hmm, I'll sit down to pee. You don't have a nightlight on in your bathroom? Nah, anything, any lights really disrupt me during mm-hmm. the night, so I try mm-hmm. and keep everything off. I've got an mm-hmm. ensuite, so it's walking down suite. Um, I sit down and I found that it is the, it is, mate, revolutionary sitting down to pee. If you guys haven't done it, I would start doing it. Do most men sit down to pee? Uh, as far as I know, yeah. definitely not. I've been kids a- taught that? No, 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 yeah, definitely right. not. You stand, that's how you pee. And mm. I've stood my whole life until recently. Um, what made you start sitting to pee? It was just that. It was just in the middle of the night. I didn't okay. want to pee all over the seat mm. and I didn't want to have to turn the light on. Mm. I used to have to bring my phone in, use a phone light. Um, but now just sit down. If you do have an erection, sit further back on the toilet and then bend forward at the hips and you can usually push your, you know, push your erection down and you keep it all in the toilet. If you let your penis come up too high under the seat, you might actually spray under the seat and it can kind of get a bit gross under there. Um, so, yeah, make sure you sit back, point it down. Yeah, Hot cause, tip. Because for those people who missed it earlier, on average men have, what, six to eight erections per night, night, night erections? Yeah. yeah. So um, it came from that and then I was like, wow, this is really it's good, you know, <laughs> not peeing over the seat or whatever. And then I just started doing it during the day and most of the time I just do it. If I'm in public toilets or whatever, different story, but – Sit down, do it a lot, um, a lot less chance of obviously peeing on the seat. Even if you lift it up, you don't want to get pee everywhere. So, yeah, it, it has changed my life for sure. Yeah, um, doctor here writes urinating while standing is an invention of modern man in an environment where he dis- he doesn't feel threatened. Prehistoric humans would be bemused if they saw a man standing up urinating against a tree. Your penis might be protected from prying eyes, but you're not protected from enemies or predators who want to attack while your back is turned. In a squatting position with your back to the tree and closer to the ground, you'd be better hidden and you'd see your potential attackers coming. You don't need to look where your urine stream is going. Instead, you are, you're scouring your surroundings. Uh, our close relatives like the chimpanzee and Bonobo, that is the pygmy chimpanzee, still squat when they urinate. And there's also the natural, and that's also the natural position for us, he writes. When you squat, your urethra hangs down in one straight line and all the urine is emptied. Standing to urinate creates a sort of siphon. Urine can stay inside the urethra and only flow out after you've finished. For example, when you sit on a chair. If men suffer from dribbling, this is mainly caused by urinating while standing. Research has also shown that the pelvic floor muscles don't contract as well when you're urinating standing. That's not ideal for your bladder because it has to use more energy to empty itself out. So, yeah, maybe men should be sitting 
more often. I do it. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, I really, um, I really liken it to you know sitting down to poop using a squatty potty as well. <laughs> Good old squatty potty. Made, I love squatty potty. I've had one for about. I think probably about eight years or something. It's had its uh, fair use. <laughs> and um, I've got one too. Yeah, they're, they're they're super good. I recommend everyone get them, at least one in their home somewhere. And um, yeah, I found that. And that plus peeing obviously helps a lot too. Mate. All about the health, Tash, all about the health. Of, of the booty. And a hot tip mm-hmm. as well for men, mm-hmm. um, especially if you've got foreskin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. I have full skin, so I don't know what it's like not to have one, but, mm-hmm. you know, get a bit of toilet paper at the end, grab on the end of your of your penis after you finish peeing and just give it a few shakes so you can avoid getting nicotine undies. Wouldn't most of men have worked that out though? No? No, I don't think so. I think it's oh. just a bit of a, a bit oh, of a shake. Oh, a bit of a shake, yeah. which makes more mess. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. You okay. don't really get rid of it. Like, but you're putting, you're doing the shake, but you're getting toilet paper at the end of it mm. and then shaking it from the head mm. you know, and like letting it hang down and shaking it. So yep. anything comes out is collected in the toilet paper. Capiche. Yeah. As I said, no nicotine undies, mate. No yellow stains. <laughs> I do love that nicotine undies. Yeah. Uh, he's written here, in Asia, most men still empty their bladders in a squatting position. That remains a normal position for them. Western Europeans can't follow their good example just like that though. And for that, we have another evolutionary chance to thank or blame. That is the shortening of our ankle tendons. Many Asians can sit quite relaxed in a squatting position, i.e. with the soles of their feet flat on the ground. If we were to try it, we'd probably toppled over. Because our tendons have shortened, we can only squat on our toes, but that's not a relaxed position. Following the Asian example takes some practice. So you as a as a PT, you do different, this is a, a, a similar, this is an exercise you do with your clients at the beginning to assess. Yeah, I check angle, ankle range of motion. Yeah, so is it, do you get them to squat? Oh, like, 100%. Yeah. yeah, so it depends on where they're at. I'll give them different variations of squats. Some of them I will elevate the heels short term to work on um, getting the knees forward so we strengthen tissues around the knees. Um, but, yeah, sometimes we'll do calf release techniques, ankle release techniques, and slowly, slowly work on getting that knee over toe position, what we call dorsiflexion, that that foot pulling up towards the knee, um, and working the front of the shin, the tibialis anterior muscle, so that they can allow that that range. And um, so it's not just about having a tight, you know, Achilles tendon or, or gastrocnemius, one of the calf muscles. It's not just about that. It's about having strength at the front, front of the shin to be able to pull them down. Into oh, that position. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, he talks here about uh, uh, not putting things down your urethra <laughs> and sticking <laughs> things into your urethra because um, if you do that, you can cause irreparable damage. And it sounds like he's during his time as a urology doctor, that he's come across a fair bit of that. Like he mentions you, here a guy who stuck a wire down it and ugh. tore the whole of his urethra. And uh, women can often do it as well and they call it uh, urethral masturbation. Interesting. Anyway, he says never, ever stick objects down their urethra. He recommends, I advise people never, ever to stick objects down their urethra. The risk of damage is, is far too great. Yeah, there was... Um 
the the tools that you use for this. This is definitely not my gig in the slightest. It freaks me the hell out, and I think it's super disgusting. If people want to do this stuff, once again, I'm a libertarian. You're an adult. You choose to do it. Whatever. Um, but make sure there's an emergency department close to where you live. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but people, um, I guess men, I don't know if women use them as well, but men use what are called sounding rods. Never heard of that. Yes. It's basically like a really thin um, metal or glass rod that's obviously been made for that purpose. So it's not like it's got no sharp, um, it's not sharp at all. It's quite long so that it can, it's not going to break off or, you know, it's probably, if you're going to do it, I would imagine it's the safest way to do it. But, yeah, this is, uh, and they have differing length, uh, sorry, widths. So some men, that's how they like to get off is sticking stuff down there mm. in that. Yeah, I think pens are the most common oh, thing. Oh. Yeah. On that note. Don't stick uh, a bick in your dick. That's all I'm going to say. In your dick. On that note, everybody, <laughs> we will uh, join you again in a couple of weeks' time for the final chapters of uh, Dr. Piet Horbeck's book, A User's Guide to the Penis members club thank you alex thanks tash i hope you've enjoyed this episode with alex that it's inspired you to pick up dr piet's holbert's book or any other book about penises join us next episode for more about the member share this episode with someone if you think it will help them please subscribe to the fanny mechanic channel and if you haven't already hop over and give the show a fantastic rating shoot me a message on instagram dr tash fanny mechanic and join the fanny mechanic podcast group on facebook Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous.